Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Welcome to this week's program, where we're going to talk about gene editing, designer babies, and the future of science. These are all topics of importance all the time, but they've become more pressing since the announcement that a Chinese scientist had actually used CRISPR-Cas9, the leading cutting-edge editing technology, to edit the genomes of two embryos to assure that they would not be able to be susceptible to the HIV virus. This was good for the embryos, but it wasn't necessary scientifically, and it's led to lots of intense discussion about whether the era of designer babies was too close and needed to be headed off by regulation. To discuss these and closely related issues, we're super fortunate to have with us George Church. George is the Robert Winthrop Professor of Genetics at Harvard Medical School. He also teaches at MIT. He's been a central actor in the development of the technologies of gene editing and in applying them to the creation of new genomes. He sometimes, in fact, calls himself a genome engineer. George, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here, Noah. Let's just start with the headline in order to make sense of what it really means and whether there are dangers associated with it of the kind that many imagine. We read in the paper that Hu Jiankui, a Chinese scientist, says, uh, or has it said about him, that he used CRISPR-Cas9 to engineer the DNA of a couple of babies and that they were then subsequently carried to term. That's what appears to be new here. And he's been, uh, the Chinese government's not very happy with him, and he has been uh, under house arrest and uh, radio silence more or less since. 
From the standpoint of the state of CRISPR technology, was there anything remarkable about the accomplishment, assuming it was accomplished, or is it relatively a, a trivial step compared to the scientific advances that had already been in place? Yeah, I would think uh, similar things had been done by other groups, including groups in the United States and Oregon to, to, on human embryos. Mm-hmm. And even more amazing things had been done on other mammalian embryos, mm-hmm. uh, including altering dozens of genes. So because here the claim was only the altering of, of one, one gene. One gene, yeah. right. You know, there's some interesting questions about choice of genes. You know, one of the things that's challenging in this field is picking a gene that even a few other people would agree is a good choice of mm-hmm. gene because, mm-hmm. you know, a fair number of genes could be fixed by other methods. Like you have to be in in vitro fertilization or IVF clinic to do this at all. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that clinic, you could fix it by just IVF, uh, prenatal genetic testing, or mm-hmm. PGT. So when it goes to the question of choosing the target of the intervention, what are the right criteria or what do you see as the main criteria that people would consider? I mean, you've mentioned now one, could you get there by some other means? Could you get there without, without changing the germline? But what are other criteria that you think would be relevant here? So uh, in addition to could you get there without altering the germline, there's also the criteria of is it a net positive for that person or a, in a public health sense on average mm-hmm. uh, a net positive. And, how and would this you, is how environmentally would... dependent. So if you're right. in, a, in an environment where everybody gets HIV mm-hmm. and dies young, mm-hmm. then that's a very different environment than... Environment where nobody gets HIV, mm-hmm. and uh, China is not ground zero for the highest level of HIV in the world. Mm-hmm. It is highly stigmatized there, um, but you know places in Africa have higher incidence of it and would mm-hmm. be better candidates. Another one is you know is cost is a consideration uh, if you want something that's going to be of true public health benefit for a disease like this impacts a lot of impoverished individuals because you have the alternative is you know drugs. Mm-hmm or safe sex, or there are a few alternatives, mm-hmm. none of which are working perfectly worldwide mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. a million people die per year, so it's about 2% of all human deaths. Mm-hmm. So to claim that this is a solved problem is just as naive as saying that this is the only way to solve the problem. Right. It's not a solved problem in real-world descriptive terms, yeah. even though in principle it, it could be solvable. So what about the criterion that asks whether something is presently an immediate threat to either the embryo or the local population, as opposed to offering some background improvement for the potential person who might come to be created or for the environment more generally. Does that seem like a a meaningful difference to you? And just to show that I'm, why I'm asking that question, it goes to the broader societal fear about what are sometimes called designer babies, you know, babies who are, who, who might have their genomes edited to give them some advantage, which could be a health advantage to begin with, but could also be other kinds of advantages, whether in aesthetics or intelligence or athletics or what have you. I think this is something that, that is very interesting entanglement of, of concerns. So, uh, the concerns are that we will create a monoculture, mm-hmm. uh, number one, monoculture where, where, every, mm-hmm. where everyone is the same, the way that you might have, a, you know, many square kilometers of identical crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is that it will be 
inequitably distributed. In other mm-hmm. words, some people have it, some people don't. That's a very different concern than you don't want anybody to have it as you want everybody to have it, mm-hmm. okay? You know, a third one is you could make a mistake uh, that it could be a very popular fad, but mm-hmm. it was a mistake that has long-term consequences, mm-hmm. either for the people who had it or the people who didn't get it. Mm-hmm. There could be stigmatization issues. In either uh, direction. It, yeah. It could be stigmatized Ex- not to have had absolutely. the intervention or to have it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there are a few more things that get tangled up here. Sometimes it's phrased as blonde hair, blue high, which was doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, you know, that's not a public health threat. It's unlikely to uh, have long-term consequences. Even if it were a monoculture, it's not a monoculture that threatens society. Well, if it's, but, it's not, but it's not an accident that people use that as the example. What they're invoking when they say that is yeah. they're associating genetic engineering with the eugenics movement of the 1880s, 90s, early 20th century, right. which was not only by any stretch of the imagination popular in Germany, but all over the world, including very yeah. much the U.S. Yeah, the United States kept doing it long after World War II. Right. I think it was into the early 1970s. And so eugenics, though this wasn't the only line of eugenic thinking at all, but it married itself up, at least in the European context, well, even with if ra- you know, now long discredited racialized theories. That's what people mean, I think, Absolute. when they say, Absolute. you know, blue yeah. eyes, blonde hair. Absolutely. And... Uh, Furthermore, there's all kinds of you know, body image issues, body shaming, and so forth that mm-hmm. it conjures up, uh, which some of which are racially independent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that within a race, mm-hmm. you'll have you know obesity shaming and mm-hmm. uh, many other um, features that determine your status in society, your socioeconomic uh, status, and hence your health status. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though it's not health explicitly. It has ramifications in that direction. Uh, so, so some of those can be addressed. So, you know, equitable distribution, we could bring down the price uh, mm-hmm. as we have for various technologies like mm-hmm. smallpox vaccine it has made it extinct and so it's basically free mm-hmm. now. So there are technologies that come down pretty quickly to zero. Mm-hmm. So that you can take some of these things, at least not necessarily off the table, but you can put them aside in a separate category. Mm-hmm. But another one is that you could ha- create... Um, it falls a bit in the inequitable distribution, but you can create people that it's not necessarily racial. It's just a new capability, right? Now, most new capabilities. Meaning have, a capability that the human population at present doesn't have. Right. And that enhancement is something that we should feel very uh, familiar with because we are enormously enhanced relative to our ancestors. Mm-hmm. So we're not actually fearful of enhancement as far as I can tell. But by that, you mean incrementally enhanced. I mean, so if you look at, I don't know, the fastest 100 meter dash times, they're getting faster, though presumably they're also going to approach a limit. But I can beat a 100 meter dash person any day in my jet. But that's a capacity enhancement that is not embodied. We have developed tools that enable us to do things, but they're not quite the same as being incorporated. It's an interesting question why we treat them differently. Because they are heritable in a certain sense. Culturally culturally heritable. Culturally heritable, but culture is, is an inheritance that I consider in many ways more threatening and more rapid than DNA-obsessed inheritance. Um, you know, it's much more likely that my daughter will have my cell phone mm-hmm. than she will have my facial features, thankfully. Uh, so we get hung up on this sort of DNA obsession. Uh, if we actually knew less science, oddly, we might draw less of a line between these, right? If we didn't know how we inherited these things, if we didn't really understand culture Mm -hmm. and technology and DNA, Mm -hmm. 
they would kind of look similar. Oh, then it's, then it's your fault for helping us understand it so well. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you're making a really interesting observation that culture has a wide range of effects. It's in some broad sense heritable. But I want to add that it's also subject to the full range, nearly every one of the serious risks that you described with respect to genetic editing. In fact, in many cases, the way we come up with our fear is we look at the distortions or the injustices produced by culture and we say, well, oh boy, you know, genetic editing might have the same Absolutely. effect. So, yeah. you know, societal inequity, yeah. check on that. Yeah. Right. But it can also Off-target be... Off-target effects, which we haven't yet gotten to, yeah. but, yeah. you know, that's broadly speaking, the idea that if we edit one thing, there will be unforeseen effects somewhere else in the genome. Yeah. Check on that in culture all the time. We improve one thing and we make yeah. other things much worse. So the early uncertain consequences. Check on that. Go on. Yeah, Yeah, I mean the the early adopters sometimes are more exposed to the unintended consequences, the off targets, and so they're essentially be signing up with their extra dollars to become the first guinea pigs. So it seems like there's some meaningful debate within the scientific community about how concerned we should be that particular desirable genetic edits. This is, assume it's we're avoiding a disease that there's no other way to avoid it, that we fit your other criteria. There seems to be some disagreement between one camp of scientists who say, because we don't know for sure what the off-target effects might be of a given intervention, we should proceed extremely slowly and carefully. And another camp of scientists, again, this is a continuum, who seem to say, we can measure off-target effects like we can measure anything else. And if we reach the point that off-target effects are less likely to occur from a genetic edit than they are in nature, then it's absurd to be so worried about it. And I'm fascinated by this question because as a layman, I have no idea how to go about answering it. Right. Well, the probably the most glib answer to it is this is the responsibility of the Food and Drug Administration in the United States and equivalents in other countries. And it happens with every single technology to some extent, but certainly the medical technologies, whether medical devices or, or small molecule drugs or protein drugs, every category has off-target effects, which are physiological. So you need to do as much as you can theoretically, followed by as much as you can with animal models or human cells in culture. And then you move on very cautiously to one person to do phase one toxicity and then efficacy, and then make sure that it's really ready for prime time. And you scale up the size of the cohort cautiously, so you expose the minimum number of people to risk for good theoretical reasons. So this combination of theory and testing uh, cautiously is what protects us um, from all our new technologies. Is the time scale particularly challenging in the case of genetic editing because you're editing an embryo, but it might be that the off-target effect doesn't express itself phenotypically until much later in life so that it might take much longer to find out what potential off-target effects are? Absolutely. You know, preventative medicine is a nice buzzword, but it's very hard to develop powerful preventative medicines because you're testing them on people that are healthy and it's not restricted to embryo editing. It's, you know, fetal surgery with actual, you know, microscalpels and things. And, uh, you know, morning sickness drugs like mm-hmm. thalidomide, which would sure, fail. Sure, uh, disastrous effects. Extreme caution is required when you're dealing with preventative medicine. For example, you take chemotherapy mm-hmm. uh, as an adult woman, uh, you could be affecting your germline mm-hmm. in ways that you also won't see until 
your babies are born or maybe their babies are born, mm-hmm. right? You used some interesting words now, which I think are, maybe they are characteristic of you, although I don't think of them as characteristic of you, namely the words extreme caution. Right. So I want to ask you about your, your hedge about the FDA. Yeah. Of course, institutionally, we assign those decisions in our democracy to the FDA, but that doesn't necessarily tell us what criteria the FDA ought to apply, or more to the point, how cautious the FDA should be or how risk-taking the FDA should be. I mean, real human beings, ideally scientists and statisticians sitting in the FDA, have to make these decisions on the basis of what data is known. So I guess what I wanted to ask you is, if I'm right that there is this continuum of how much risk we should take in the scientific community around gene editing, where do you fall on that continuum? The words extreme cautions sort of put you on, sound like they put you among the really let's not rush this side. I think I tend to fall on the, I worry about everything and I want everybody else. I don't want to reassure people necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not in a big rush for most things, even aging reversal, (laughs) even though I'm aging, I'm not in a big rush. So don't worry about it. (laughs) I'm not in a big rush, but that said, I'm not, I don't fall into the camp of we should put as many barriers in the way as possible Mm -hmm. so that it never happens Mm -hmm. or be so vague about it that we can never be satisfied as to what the criteria are for letting mm-hmm. it go forward. And it is a continuum. And I think the FDA does a, an admirable job of prioritizing. So if you have a very serious disease that's going to kill you tomorrow, they have a different um, mm-hmm. threshold than if you have a healthy baby who has every expectation of being healthy and you're going to give it something that uh, might extend its life by 10 years 80 years from now, mm-hmm. that barrier is very hard to get permission to do that study, and rightly so. There's a line of thought that says using the FDA as one pole of, you described pretty admirable cost-benefit weighing, and then on the other side, looking at China, where at least in one instance, there seems to have been a lot of risk-taking, that says, look, it's all well and good to say the FDA should be cautious, but out there in the world, outside the reach of more cautious and maybe typically democratic, although that doesn't have to follow governments, we're going to get lots of innovation, lots of risk-taking, and that will fall behind uh, if we listen to the FDA or we allow the FDA to be cautious. Or alternatively, that says we ought to be very aggressively going out and trying to export our own limitations by pressuring foreign governments to make sure that they crack down to a greater, greater extent. How, how do you think about that phenomenon? As science is increasingly globalized, as prices come down, as scientists train across borders, there's no in principle reason that a country with a reasonable infrastructure, scientific infrastructure, can't make all kinds of innovations under a very different regulatory environment. Well, first of all, I would say that the Chinese FDA, the CFDA, mm-hmm. is very similar. To the mm-hmm. FDA. I think they have a similar risk profile. I think their government, whether you want to call it capital, hyper-capitalistic or... Right less than perfectly democratic. It doesn't really matter. The point is they are capable and often do crack down better than we do. So in in the United States, it's very hard to interfere with industry, not because they run Congress or anything, but because there's an obsession with freedom. And in the Chinese uh, government, they can crack down on things that are unsafe in ways that are very difficult to do otherwise. So for example, cleaning up Beijing for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's something that I don't think we could have done. Um, and they're very technocratic too. I mean, I heard that a, a huge fraction, maybe 80% of their top politicians 
have degrees in science or engineering. Mm-hmm. And not because they're failed scientists or engineers, but because as politicians, they went back and got those degrees mm-hmm. because they felt it was important for understanding the issues. That is so far from where we are. We're more in a culture of, if I need some facts, I'll give them to you, mm-hmm. right? You know, This is a question that I've been very curious to ask you. Today, to be a cutting edge researcher as you are, it's also perhaps expected is too strong a word, but not surprising when one also holds lots of patents and starts companies that develop those patents or that try to develop mm-hmm. those patents. So yeah. the entrepreneurial side seems to coexist very naturally, easily, almost normatively with being a, a leading scientist. How do you think about that relationship? Because that's been an important part of your practice. Yeah. So if you have a, an invention where you've gone from the vast cloud of scientific discovery to something that you think might be useful. It's not sufficient to write up a, a academic ivory tower paper and hope for the best because mm-hmm. nobody's going to use it. You know, sometimes there's some concern that capitalism in that form will infect us, uh, you know, that affects us by manipulating us. In other words, marketing. That the scientist entrepreneur cannot be as pure as the scientist who's receives grants and does basic research. I think a lot of people fear that. Yeah, and, uh, and they fear that even after the scientist steps away and goes back to the ivory tower, the company that's been created has a life of its own and it, w- it will be motivated to use marketing and advertising and lobbying to give us our opinion rather than listen to us. Mm-hmm. And I think these are all valid things. On the other hand, if you're talking about companies going rogue, there's certain challenges to that, uh, meaning that the CEO reports to the board of directors and to the stockholders in general. And so to do something blatantly irresponsible can resu- result in a huge public relations problem. Your stock's uh, value can mm-hmm. crash and so forth. Mm-hmm. While an academic with tenure mm-hmm. who has acted responsible, they can go off and do whatever they want. Right. They don't really report to, to anybody. anybody. Yeah. Right. So there's a danger, in other words, also in having the pure scientist who can do whatever he wants or she wants and he's not responsible at all. So let's take this then back to the question of the future of CRISPR or other similar editing technologies. In terms of the state of the science now, how credible is it that existing editing technologies could, if they were allowed to by regulators, actually make interventions at population level in a significant way. Yeah. Are, are there actually traits, enough traits that, that matter that are addressable by editing one or two genes or a handful of genes to actually make, make an impact? How much of this is science fiction fantasy and how much of this is within the, the reach of reality? So there's an interesting phenomenon. That I, I would say a huge fraction of my colleagues would reassure you that human genetics is so complex mm-hmm. that we are so far away, we don't need to worry about it. I think that is false. I've talked to some of them. <laughs> that, I think that is false reassurance. Very uh, interesting. Same more. I, 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 so I think that we have sort of the textbook cases of complex genetics or things like height. Right. Thousands of genes involved, possibly all the genes are involved, mm-hmm. uh, to, and they each have a very tiny effect along with hundreds of environmental effects, you know, why is it that over the generations we've gotten taller and taller? It's better nutrition. So mm-hmm. this seems hard to, pr- 
predict, much less to manipulate. Mm-hmm. And, wh- and when your, your colleagues, just to flesh out the argument for, for listeners, when they say nothing to worry about, they often you do use height. Yeah. And they say, well, look, if, if we know right now that it, there are four or 500 genes involved in just producing a tiny thousands. percentage of the variants, yeah. right, and thousands to get yeah. you to the whole variety, yeah. we're never, or at least not in the foreseeable future, going to be able to edit all of those different right. locations. Yeah. So therefore, you know, don't worry your pretty little head about it. Or that's what they, they say to me. So, so tell so me there's, why, there's why three, they're, they're three things, me. There's three things wrong with that. I mean, one is there are single genes that are so impactful that even though in the natural population, they hardly add anything to it, mm-hmm. in the medical situation, they have a huge impact. In particular for height, there's about seven different medical situations where physicians and patients want to do something about height. Mm-hmm. It isn't necessarily because they're genetically defective in mm-hmm. height. It's some other reason. And the answer is one gene, mm-hmm. one gene product with mm-hmm. somatotropin or sometimes called growth hormone. To me, that just really nails the counter arguments. So the counter argument is the geneticists who don't want you to worry say there's so many different genes that are involved. And you say, naturally. Well, right. And you say, it, well, that might be true naturally, but that doesn't mean there isn't an intervention we could make exactly. on a particular gene that yeah. would actually have the effect of overshadowing, overshadowing yeah. the, all, all of the, the natural variations. So in other words, it's, that, a, it's a mistake to reason from natural variation to the capacities of technological intervention. Exactly. And this is not hypothetical mm-hmm. because there are seven different so-called diseases or medical mm-hmm. treatments that are approved and are in routine use that involve this one gene somatotropin. Second, they'll say, oh, it will have unintended consequences. Well, the fact is in medicine, we always have unintended consequences. We almost always deal with them. We just say, the benefits outweigh the risks. Mm-hmm. So and that's then, an ethical argument that they make. The, the first argument is a, don't worry because it's not going to be practical uh-huh. to engage in these kinds of systematic yeah. edits. This argument set is the is the ethical concern that says, we don't know, there might be off-target effects. And you're saying there always are, and we, we're accustomed to that, and we, we, we balance the costs the, and the benefits. But the distinction is blurred between practical and ethical very often mm-hmm. because you'll say, it's impractical because there's all these off targets. Ah, the thing is, it is totally practical because almost everything has off targets and right. you maybe take a second drug to deal with it mm-hmm. or you stratify the population or you, there's all sorts of things. There's all do. sorts of tricks you can use. So, so, don't, so, so it's not so a great practical objection you, either that there might you, be off target effects. When you hear those two arguments, these are the grains of salt that you should take it with. Okay. Those and are the, pretty big grains. And the third one is that the technology is so far from standing still. I mean, it is growing exponentially that, that even if you say we can't do it today, it could be, you know, somewhere between minutes and, and years, mm-hmm. not centuries. Mm-hmm. They often use the word centuries. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. There's no centuries anymore. <laughs> you know? so, so, for example, my lab's personal record mm-hmm. and pretty much world record mm-hmm. for editing genes pre-CRISPR mm-hmm. or, or around the time of CRISPR was two. Mm-hmm. We could edit two genes and... And we were very proud of ourselves that we edited more than one. Right. Just, just literally two years later, we had edited 62 genes simultaneously for, to make a pig that didn't have any viruses, any mm-hmm. retroviruses in its genome. Mm-hmm. Just a year or two after that, we now have edited 13,000 uh, genes simultaneously. In a mammal. In a human, human in a cells. Human, yeah. human cells, wow. Okay. Human so, cells, not a human. Important distinction yes, from the regulator's perspective. Right. At least. <laughs> So the point is, this is moving very quickly. What's great is we're having these conversations 
well in advance, but what used to be well in advance, we started talking about designer babies in the early days of recombinant DNA and in vitro fertilization sort of mm-hmm. in the early 70s. Yep. That was well in advance. But the conversations we're having now are not 40 not years in advance. advance they're, right. they're, yeah, they're, they're more like a decade. When I look at the overall picture that you describe, you know, the extraordinary change, the speed of change, I wonder whether the institutions that we talked about before, the FDA or the Chinese FDA, are really strong enough and capable enough to resist the temptations that are going to come with the tremendous technological capacities that are being developed. I mean, if we look at our history, we don't have a great history of using institutions, regulatory institutions, to block the cutting edge. The cutting edge usually tends to to emerge. And that's partly, I think, because of the power of capital, you know, which you've mentioned here. It's also partly that once something is possible, there will be people advocating for it. If you have a rare disease, you will say, look, it's not that it would be unethical to try to cure this disease. It would be unethical not to try to cure this, this disease. So can we hold back against the potential risks here. You know, we say now, well, of course we would never do this to give people purely aesthetic advantages, but in reality, maybe we would. It is true that capitalism can distort the FDA and and its ilk uh, around the world, but I think there is a, there is still a feedback mechanism that's bigger than all of this, which is that if it really doesn't work or isn't cost effective or desirable, we will stop using it. Uh, in fact, uh, my worry is not what if it doesn't work. My, my worry is more, what if it, well, by, if by, it does by, work? By work, I mean, doesn't work for society, the, the long-term benefit to society. And there, there are examples. So first, what do FDAs around the world not do? So they do safety and efficacy, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily do equitable distribution or very long-term risk. They have long-term risk in mind, but the way they've set up the structure is if you can convince them mm-hmm. that on a short-term risk basis that you've done all the experiments, mm-hmm. you get to you test, get to it test it. in phase four, which is basically selling it. And then once right. capitalism kicks in, then it's very hard to regulate. So perfect example of this are nutritional supplements and stem cells. Mm-hmm. Those manage to get into the marketplace without full FDA approval. And now they're bigger than the rest of the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. and so they're hard to regulate. Um, but, but another, bad example, another bad example would be the opioid crisis. I mean, I was just oi- about to go sorry, there. Yeah. Please no, go no, there. No, it's a good one. So uh, this is something where if you create something that's sufficiently addictive, people will try it, mm-hmm. and then they become lobbyists. Uh, they yeah. vote. They vote with their wallet, which is in many ways more powerful than voting uh, with ballots. Mm-hmm. That said, there will be a feedback system. If any country manages to get a business model or a country policy model that prevents this, uh, they will win because the nations that can't control their opioid crisis um, become impoverished, mismanaged, et cetera. They become the new third world nation. Can I push push back on that? I mean, so everything we've talked about until now, I'm the purest layperson. But now when we talk about feedback in governments, I have something to say. And here's what I would want to say. We've got lots of examples where societies inflict huge costs on themselves, but the costs are not so great that they turn them into, as you would say, third world countries because they have other tremendous advantages. So tobacco would be a really good example. You know, I remember my grandfather who was trained in pharmacy school in the 1920s describing a film that they were all shown of the 
horrible effects on the human lung of tobacco smoking. And then the tobacco industry literally came, bought up all the copies of those films, destroyed them and blocked that from, you know, from being publicly known. It wasn't the same as a cause of relationship to cancer necessarily, but they knew the health effects were absolutely terrible and comparable to what you got by working in a, in a mine. So, you know, there's an example of total failure of regulatory institutions. Absolutely. And the handful of countries that were able to regulate smoking to a slightly greater degree did not enjoy any great benefits. In fact, there's an even an argument, it's a perverse argument, but the tobacco companies did make it at one point, that it was good for the economy that people smoked because you didn't spend a lot of money on their late in life healthcare because they died of lung cancer. So it's not always the case that really bad social effects impoverish a country. That's correct. So I I was just saying, that there is a feedback mechanism. Yeah. Do we need other things? We probably do. But do we think that we can, via voluntary moratoria, do something more powerful than capitalism? That I think is a little naive. We need to think of all the ways we can do surveillance, for example, is one of the things I've advocated. Rather than being falsely reassured, let's have strong surveillance. You know, in the topic today of these uh, CRISPR babies, Mm -hmm. there were plenty of people in the world, both in China and the United States who knew about it, but they weren't um, reporting it. We need uh, to encourage whistleblowers and Mm -hmm. we need to- uh, That's what you mean by surveillance. I mean, uh, it's one form of surveillance. Mm -hmm. The other form of surveillance is computer surveillance. So Mm -hmm. we should have computers looking through all the orders that are relevant to synthetic biology broadly Mm -hmm. and maybe other technologies as Mm -hmm. well to see if people are doing things for which they do not have a license. So the privacy concerns in your view are just outweighed Absolutely. by the tremendous dangers associated with lack of exactly. surveillance. So I think that everybody who practices synthetic biology and its close relatives has given up some of their privacy rights uh, in the same sense that when you get a driver's license, you give up certain rights. Mm-hmm. There are radars that are looking to see what you're doing. You can get pulled over mm-hmm. if you're weaving around and you mm-hmm. can get an alcohol test. And mm-hmm. You can get, they can check your age and so forth. You have to have surveillance. And we do have more resistance typically to those forms of surveillance in the U.S. than they do, for example, in Europe. Here we think, you know, it would be a terrible violation of our civil liberties if when we got onto the highway, they checked the time. And when we got off the highway, they checked the time and saw whether we were speeding in between. Oh, yes. But in, in, you know, if you did that on the Mass Pike, you know, there would be a riot here in Massachusetts, yeah. but in Europe, there are speed cameras everywhere. Yeah. The fines are enormous. Yeah. You know, yeah. right. you are meant to feel surveilled when you drive. Right. You do feel surveilled when you drive there. And that's pro-social. That's, that's, yeah. that's desirable. And but that's me, why I think when we create boogeymen outside the United States, we're completely ignoring how we have a huge fraction of the world's billionaires, many of whom are very pro-libertarian, I can do whatever I want. Sure. I think it's much more likely that the rogues are going to be us. George, thank you so much for your, oh, for your time and thanks pleasure. for, for yeah. sharing your, your ideas. I'm not sure I, I emerged uh, less worried than when I started, but oh, you've told me that worry is healthy. So it is. Yeah. I guess I've got plenty of it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. I asked George Church to come on the show because I wanted to get a better sense than I had about just how worried we should be about the potential advent of designer babies. When George first started talking, I started to feel better. I began to think that maybe the FDA was a reasonable institution for regulating the possible 
bad effects of designer babies. And George was also reassuring about the thought that the Chinese government also is interested in blocking progress from going too quickly or getting out of hand. But as our conversation proceeded, I started to get more and more nervous. In particular, George was pretty convincing in suggesting that those scientists who say we don't have to worry about gene editing leading to designer babies soon are actually completely wrong about that. Then, as he began to describe the potential effects of companies and capitalism on the development of science, I began to think that maybe there were going to be economic pressures driving us in the direction of greater and greater innovation and greater and greater risk-taking. And finally, when we circled all the way back to those same regulatory agencies, George seemed to think that there was some possibility that in the long run we would make mistakes, but that we would be self-correcting. And there he and I parted paths because I'm deeply afraid that we're not that good at fixing our mistakes, that there are too many examples of our regulatory regimes breaking down. And we ended with George saying that he thinks that if anyone's going to go rogue, it's going to be us right here in the United States. And that, my friends, leaves me more nervous than anything else. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover the Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.